All right. So if you've got a Bible, would you open it up and turn with me to Psalm 120? Psalm 120, where we will pick up. Uh, if you've been with us, you know we were selecting these psalms randomly through our. We'll do it at the end of the service through our fancy bingo machine. Uh, all the psalms left that we've never done. So each summer we take a pause and we study the psalms, which is a study in prayer, a study in crying out to the Lord, a study in praising the Lord, and we learn the psalms of this great guide book for such things. And so we are in Psalm 20 this week. Before um, I read the psalm and explain the psalm, uh, I'd just like to take a moment to pray um, for, I purposely wore my favorite Hawaiian shirt today uh, because our brothers, sisters, our close neighbors uh, on the island of Maui are as I'm sure most of you are aware, going through a, a terrific or terrific time. Yeah, that's the right way to say it. It's it's terrible and tragic and hard. And so we just want to take a moment to pray for them and to remember them and to keep them in our thoughts and our prayers. And um, if the Lord should so lead you to support them in ways. Um, I am a part of a prayer group, and I got a prayer email this week uh, from Christians on the island who have created a Google sheet with names of people who were unaccounted for. That list started at 4,000 or so individuals, and um, we can celebrate that every time someone is found, the the little marker is changed from um, unlocated to located, and there's about 3,000 of those plus that have been located, and I'm, I'm sure that spreadsheet's not totally up-to-date or accurate, um, but there remains people who are not accounted for uh, on the island, and so we want to continue to pray for them and remember them. Um, and many of them in this spreadsheet have the church that they're a part of next to their names, and so um, we pray for those who are um, brothers and sisters in the faith and those who are not yet a part of the family of Christ. We pray for all. And so if you just take a moment and we will we'll cry out to the Lord for deliverance and for rescue and for restoration and resurrection and, and all the things that we know God can do. Father, we, we cry out to you. We need you. We pray for our spiritual family that's struggling and hurting and broken because of the fallenness of this world, because of the groans of the earth, because we know this is not yet our home. And so the events of the last week in, in Maui are just reminders of that, God. And so we ask for your help. East of Eden, we ask for your hand of peace. We ask for wisdom for those leading the rescue efforts, the recovery efforts. We pray for the families who have lost loved ones. God, that you would be so near to them that you would remind them of the resurrection. Remind them that the end of the story in this life is not the end of the story and that you would provide hope in the midst of the tears God, and that you would bring 
reconciliation and reuniting to those who have still not seen or heard the voice of their loved one, God, would you bring a sense of connection even as they wait to reconnect in person? God, our hearts ache. We cry tears with those who cry tears. We say why with those who say why. God, may they feel our prayers. God, may they hear your voice. God, heal, restore, resurrect, bring new life through the ashes. We know you are that God. You are not far from us. You hear our cries. Help us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Prayer like that is not far from the lips of the psalmists as we've seen over the last several weeks. Uh, God has given me three psalms randomly this summer, and all three of them are songs of lament of recognizing and crying out that the world is not as it should be. And so I've titled today's sermon, a so- uh, Heavenly Homesickness, A Song of Heavenly Homesickness, because we are longing for home. Now, you'll see in your Bible uh, that this song is titled A Song of Ascents. A song of ascents, and you see that's plural ascents. And so Psalm 20 is actually the first psalm in a series of 15 psalms that talk about um, ascending. And, and the Hebrew word literally means the goings up. And so there's been scholarly debate about why were these songs collected, these poems collected and put together. Um, but the sort of leading theory, and it's pretty much agreed on, is these are songs that were sung by the people of God as they made a pilgrimage, usually three times a year, for the faithful Jewish people from wherever they were living to Jerusalem, to the temple. And so as you read through Psalm 20 through to 35, you'll see sort of this growing progression of, of getting nearer and nearer and nearer to the throne room of God. And so these songs of ascent, these goings up, these songs would have been sung by the people as they pilgrimaged. So like pilgrim songs. So you could just picture them walking through the deserts and up the slopes. And they're called songs of ascent because Jerusalem elevation-wise was higher than all the surrounding areas. So no matter if you're coming from the north or the south or the east or the west, you would always go up towards the mountain of God. And Jerusalem is called Mount Zion. It's another name for it. And so they're songs of ascent. As we're going to... Uh, our true home, you could say. And so the theme that you'll hear me talk about over and over today is this idea of heavenly homesickness. And so these pilgrims would have had this strong desire to go be near to God, the mountaintop, uh, with the devoted and faithful people of God who are also making this pilgrimage. Now, this... Psalm, you'll read it and you'll sound this. This doesn't sound like a 
cheerful song. I'm about to go on vacation. This is going to be great. You're going to be like, this is a song of ascent? This doesn't sound so good. But, but what you'll see and what I want you to hear is this is actually the pre-leaving prompt in the heart that, that reminds us that we are not home yet. We need that reminder that this isn't home yet. And so even as I was praying for this week and thinking about the people in Maui, I was reminded of this, right? Like I've vacationed in Lahaina. I know the beauty of that place. It feels a bit like Eden, doesn't it? Like home. Like this is as close to heaven as you might get. That's how that's why so many people visit and vacation there. But this is a reminder that that's not home. That is not, we are not yet there. It's beautiful. The people are amazing. But yet, that's not all the way. So no matter where you live, uh, whether you're coming from the dusty plains of Oklahoma or the beautiful tropical islands of Hawaii, there will be reminders in your life that this can't be all that God has for us. And that this can't be is buried so deep in our heart that when, when we're reminded of it, what we should do is turn like the psalmist does to this great cry of hope that what God has promised and buried in our hearts will one day be recovered and found again through the coming of Jesus and the restoring of all things that is promised in Scripture. So these are the songs of ascent. So we're going to read it, and it's going to sound a bit strange <laughs> that this is how the journey sort of starts. But I think this is how the journey needs to start for all of us to realize that we're not home yet. Okay? So let me read it for you, and then I'm going to play you a little song. Uh, Jonathan, as I'm reading this, I'm getting a little, I don't know if you guys hear it, but it's a little wi wispy. Or a little lispy. Okay, so maybe you can fine-tune that. Maybe it's just in my ear. I have been struggling with a cold all week, so... Um, Pardon me. Here we go. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Lord, rescue me from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. What will he give you? And what will he do to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrow with burning charcoal? What misery that I have stayed in Meshech, that I have lived among the tents of Kedar. I have dwelt too long with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the situation. Take me home, God. Do you hear it? Do you hear his cry of, this can't be what you have for me. I know that you save me, God. I know that you're God of salvation. And so this is how the songs of ascent, the songs of pilgrims begin. And I just came across this uh, this week. We were out visiting with a friend. Several of you actually ended up uh, meeting there by random occasion at this Irish pub in Madrona called Madrona Arms. Uh, I was there because two guys, one guy from my alpha table uh, named Stuart, him and his brother, they're both from Ireland, they're twins, they were playing a little gig at this pub, and 
Um, so we went there. Another guy from my alpha table owns Madrona Arms. It was great. His name is Peter. And so my cadre met me there. Coolest cadre, by the way. And then um, we, we listened to this song. And the very final song that was sang was a song by Paul Simon, Simon and Garfunkel, called Homeward Bound. And I listened to it. It was the last song they sang. And I sat over and I sang it at the top of my lungs. I knew every word. And why did I know every word? Because as a teenager... And I still, to this day, struggle to sleep. So I had a CD. For those of you who don't know, it's a compact disc. It's circular. It's like vinyl. You guys know vinyl, but you don't know CD. It's like a mini vinyl, and it spins, and I had a CD player. And before I go to bed, I'd turn on Simon and Garfunkel's Greatest Hits. And I would always listen to the first seven songs and then fall asleep. They're very soothing, comforting songs. And then I'd always wake up for the last song, which is Cecilia, You're Breaking My Heart. Anyhow, if you know something, it's very loud. And then I have to, ah, turn it off and then fall back to sleep. So I know these songs by heart. And he was playing it. I was so excited. It didn't hit me till today. That's how God works in my life, by the way. Today that that's a song of ascent. That's Psalm 120. Homeward Bound. So I shall play you a little bit so that if you had parents like me, you might remember the song. It was playing during the four-minute conversation, and then I'll read you a couple of the lyrics. Go ahead, John. Play it so you can get the melody. Oh, beautiful. You guys love it when I play songs here. I know you do. Okay, so picture me. Stands my suitcase and guitar in hand Never stopped as neatly planned For a poet and a one-man band Homeward bound I wish I was Homeward bound Home When my thoughts are escaping home When my music's playing home When my love lies waiting silently Days an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines. And each town looks the same to me the movies and the factories. And every stranger's face I see reminds me that I long to be homeward bound. I wish I was homeward bound. Home, where my thoughts escaping home, where my music's playing home, where my love lies waiting. Love lies waiting silently for me. This is a song of lament, but ascent. So you could picture uh, Paul Simon is himself a Jewish, grew up in a Jewish home. Uh, he says of himself, not a particularly... Um, sort of vibrant religious home and yet deep in his bones I believe are the cries of the people of God that he's probably heard these songs of ascent and it just can't help but make its way out and millions upon millions have sang that song and they feel that same feeling of being homesick for some place or something that's other Paul Simon himself quoted on an NPR interview, he was asked, point blank, where do you locate your Jewish heritage in your songwriting? And he said, it's hard to say, because it's a cultural sensibility that you grow up with. 
How exactly you define that, I don't know. It's there, but it's only there because of the world I grew up in. It's not a world that I wanted to grow up in. It's not a religion that I chose to follow, but it's a culture that I was comfortable in, and aspects of it was something that I admired. You see that? I believe part of that culture that he grew up in is this deep longing that you see in the Jewish community, this longing that this can't be as good as it gets, this uncomfortableness with the state of affairs. And that culture, you see it all over, they are pressing for something more, and it's beautiful because it's the groaning of God's people. Whether or not they are attributing that longing to heaven and God's kingdom come in full, it's still there because it's rooted in this culture. And, that, and that's the kind of culture we want to have as a church, a culture of groaning for more, groaning for the kingdom come. That's why we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And every time we don't see it, we cry this out. God, I'm surrounded by enemies with deceitful tongues with lips that lie, with lips and hearts that desire war, not shalom, not peace. You see it? It's there, and, it's, and, and it, again, the world is enchanted with the hope of the gospel, and we just have to have eyes and ears to hear and see that this is not our eternal home. This is not as good as it gets. We all know that, and then we must respond and do something with it. And so for the people of God, they had this ritual Three, at least three times a year, they'd leave where they were with the warring and the deceit, and they would travel many miles and at great expense and cost to Jerusalem where they would reunite for these festivals. There was the festival of the Passover that remembers God's intervening act of saving them from slavery, where the angel of death passed over their houses because of the blood of the lamb and then therefore spared them life and family unity. Then they would come again 50 days later for the festival of Pentecost, and they'd celebrate the harvest that God has given them what they need to survive as strangers and aliens and exiles in this world until his kingdom comes in full. And they'd travel again, and they'd sing these songs. And then they would come for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where they would remember God's saving mercy and grace in the world. And so They had this rhythm of of leaving the struggle that they were in and going to and uniting for this moment, this temporary moment, this reminder of what the kingdom is and will be and can be, and then God would send them back into the distress of life. And so this very first psalm, even though when you read it, you're like, this doesn't sound like a happy song of ascent, it actually is a perfect place to start. Because when you look around the valley and you recognize that things are not as God desires, we must climb the mountain to hear from the Lord, be reminded and renewed and refreshed, and then he'll send us back into the lives he's called us to. As Paul says, to live is Christ, and Christ live a life of struggle and suffering and death for those he loved. So this is the way of the people of God that at times they need to be reminded and ascend and hear from God and see what God has planned for them and experience it so that that will give us the energy and the patience to live out 
the struggle that we were in, that we are in. So, longing for home. I wish I were homeward bound. A great cry of God's people. So, when we choose to sing these songs of ascent and look forward to the great gathering of God's people, these devoted saints who themselves, right, just think about when you'd go up to the temple, you're now with a bunch of people who themselves thought it important enough, they were serious enough about their faith to take the time and expense to go and gather together. So these are devoted, these are, these are the saints, you could say, of the nation of Israel. doesn't mean that everybody went, but those who really understood the importance and, and, and trusted in God's plan. Why, why do you want us to travel all this way, God, three times a year? They took him at his word, and they did that, and they went. And so these are a collection of people who, who are really sold out. And then at that festival, they experience a taste of heaven. So you can just imagine them as the festival's approaching, singing Psalm 120, God, I'm surrounded by these deceitful tongues. I can't wait to go be with the people of truth. And then it finally comes, and you'll see the songs of ascent progress. I was thinking about, do we have anything, or have I experienced anything similar to this? And I have. I have. One of the things as a pastor that I've experienced, because, I mean, not only... Am I a follower of Jesus? I love the Lord. I'm a churchgoer. I love the people of God. But I'm also a little crazy, like a little extra crazy. Like I left my life in, in accounting to, to go to seminary and start a church. And so at times you look in the mirror and you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> you're, are you okay? Is your brain functioning properly? And let's go do it in the city of Seattle because Seattle loves Church and Jesus. You just look at our sandwich signs. They love it. It's like all the donut shop sandwich signs never get graffitied. Ours get graffitied all the time. We can't keep up. I mean, we've had probably like 25 signs stolen over the years. Why didn't anybody steal the donut signs? Those things are bad for you. Okay. But we love them. We have them here. Sedaris Donuts. We're thinking about putting up donut signs. Okay. So why do I do that? So one of the things I've experienced is when I go to like a conference of church planters, I, I, there, there is this freedom that I experience when I gather. Because in a room, maybe a couple hundred other church planters, I just walk in knowing I'm not the craziest person in the room. <laughs> I know that these people are devoted and they love the Lord and they've They've given great expense to, to, to be a part of a church planting movement. And so I've experienced that. And, and in that room, I don't have to be Pastor Dave. I just get to be one of the saints gathered to sing God's praise. And I can just tell you, there is, um, you can ask Ryan about this too. It's a strange groan that happens during that first song at one of these church planters retreat conferences. And it's a loud groan. It's like when we sing worship songs, I mean, no offense to you, it's 10, 15, 20 times louder in that room than the same number of people in this room. There's this abandon to God. We know we're going to be sent back into this, these hard places of starting new churches. 
because most new churches are started in places where they need new churches. And so there's always a bit of grinding against what the people of that city want to give them what they need, this life, this, this living water. And so this, the, the volume, the sheer volume of when church players get together and sing, is, is, it's like every time it hits me, it's astounding. One, we don't have a sermon running around in our head, and so we just focus on singing. But two, it's just this groan of this, we know this is a safe place. We know the other people around us are not warring against us or, or wondering why we sing like we sing or do what we do. There's the, and I think that's the feeling you'd get after being scattered and coming together in Jerusalem. And so you could, as I would prepare for these, I just would get excited in my heart, but part of the excitement was remembering how hard things are as I'm going to this retreat, this summit, this rest with other people of God. Now don't worry, in a second, one of my big takeaways is every Sunday this can be that place. I'll talk about how we become that place for each and every one of us. So as we sing this psalm, this song of homesickness, it really is a praise. It really is a praise to what home is like. Does that make sense? So as the psalmist is saying, Lord, verse 2, rescue me from lying lips and deceitful tongues. He's saying, God, your home, your home is a home of truth where lies have no place, where the shadows are gone, where the light breaks through. It's a praise that God is a God of truth. You see that? So when we pray at the end of the psalm, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Speaking of the surrounding non-Jewish tribes that surrounded them, that's what the song is talking about. It's a praise to what home is like. Home is a place of shalom, of peace, where there is no war. We're not fighting hand in hand to take from others. It's not a place of covetousness. I don't want your land. It's all God's land. You see that? So even in this, what seems like this great lament of of how hard life is for the psalmist, as he looks forward to this ascent to Jerusalem, he's looking forward to this moment where there's not fighting all around him, where people want peace as God wants peace. There is this how long when we cry out for the things of heaven, for the things of God's kingdom come to earth as they are there. So, I feel like this has sort of hit me particularly hard because I am somebody who struggled with homesickness as a kid. Does anybody want to admit that, that you struggled with homesickness? Like, when I went to camp, and you could share this in your cadre, I got so homesick. I mean, deep, deep despair. And I remember it, and it was awful. Um, And I often struggled with it. What's wrong with me? Why am I so weak? Why, why Why are my other friends struggling so much with homesickness like I am? I could tell you story after story. 
sleepless nights. And so, there, so there's sort of one angle to look at it where it's sort of like, I hate myself for being so homesick. Maybe you feel like that when, maybe you're so homesick for heaven that this world and this earth and this life, all you want to do is escape it. That's okay. Because part of my homesickness was I had such a great home. That my parents loved me so well. That's why I was so sick and missing it. So if you're a person who looks around and you see the brokenness of the world or you hear about the fires in Maui or, or you see the cancer and, and the brokenness and all around you and, and you and you just long for home, that's okay. You don't have to become some optimist. Just let those deep thoughts of seeing the brokenness, of seeing all the lies around you, of seeing all the war... Let those thoughts be a reminder of how good your home will be. Don't hate that part of yourself. Perhaps God's given you a prophetic bent to feel and see and empathize with the brokenness of people in this world. And he wants you to speak of that with hope, not despair. Because home is coming. Mom and dad always picked me up from camp wasn't a false hope, wasn't a lie, it was true. Camp only lasted a week. <laughs> and the, true, the, the promise of scripture is life on this earth is but a heartbeat of eternity. That it's hard when you're in it, you feel homesick, but home is real. And we get little tangible, temporary moments of reminders that home is real. So what are those temporary, sometimes fleeting moments that, that, that we can have this thing we hope for? So let's look to the psalmist again. What are the two big things that he's not experiencing when he's far from Jerusalem and away from the people of God? He's surrounded, he says, by these two people groups, Meshach and Kedar. Now these seem to be historical true uh, people groups. Uh, it's hard to put your finger on it. They're mentioned in Scripture in different places, but I think the psalmist is using them metaphorically as these people who are not the people of Israel, the people of God. And so you could imagine the psalmist living amongst these people, surrounded. Now, geographically, these aren't two people like pinning him in. These are separated, uh, different parts. One's in uh, the Arabian Peninsula, and one is up in northern Turkey. So he's not saying... He's squished between these people. He's just saying, it's like being with these people who are not God-fearers, Yahweh worshipers. This is what it feels like. And the two things that he experiences most are, these are people with lying lips and deceitful tongues. And then he prays in verse 4, he says, or verse 3 and 4, he says, what do you think will be given to you for your lying, deceitful tongue? And he, and he almost prays a curse over them. He prays that God would bring sharp arrows, a warrior's arrows. He's referring to God's sharp arrows with burning charcoal. So this is imagery that's throughout the Old Testament of how God will repay deceit and lies to his people. But he's not saying, I will send the arrows. He's asking for God to do justice. He's leaving it in God's hand because 
Living amongst lying people and deceitful people is so heartbreaking, isn't it? So what, what is there in that for us today? Do we live amongst a people of deceitful tongues and lying lips? Do you think that's true? Do you think this has rev- relevance for us today? I think absolutely. Are we surrounded by lying lips, deceitful tongues? Absolutely. Do you sometimes struggle to know what's, what's up and what's down, what's true and what's false? The confusion of that? I mean, do you feel this? Absolutely. So I thought of a few categories in which we are lying. I'll, I'll start with, as the people of God, we experience this. And then I'll show it through categories of all people experience this. The first is, we are surrounded by people who lie about who God is. Like, that's really hard. If, you're, if you love God, and you turn to God, and, and maybe you're not there yet, and that's okay. But when you come to know who God is, and then people talk about God in a different way, it's incredibly hurtful. And the psalmist would have been living in that, where there would have been people worshiping God and gods in all these other ways. And probably speaking ill of the God of Israel. So I think one of the biggest ways in which people lie about God is that they say God is not a loving God. Now, God is a loving God. We know that first and foremost because God sent his one and only son, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh and to live the life that we could not live, the perfect life, to become the perfect sacrifice, to become the new lamb that atones for the sin of the world. And Jesus died on the cross. God was hung on a cross for our sake. He's a loving God. That's not the only way we know God's a loving God. One of the main ways in which and this is inside the church and outside the church that God is lied about that hurts my heart. They say, God's not loving. And, and, and they might even be trying to say, God is loving, but actually they're saying the opposite. He's not loving because they say God doesn't care. So preachers all over this country and all over this region will say, God doesn't care so much about how you live your life. He wants you to be happy and whatever brings you happiness And they say that's love, but that's not love. I believe God loves you so much that he cares about how you use every part of what he's given you, how you use your body, how you use your words, how you use the gifts that he's given you to bring life and flourishing for your fellow humans. He cares about everything that you do, just like I care about everything my sons do, Grayson and Owen. Would would you say I'm a loving dad if I, "Eh, whatever you guys want to do, whatever makes you happy, just go for it. They would create so much carnage in their path, if you've ever been around them, lots of energy. It would not be for their good or for anyone in their proximity's good or it wouldn't be good. But I care about what they do because I love them. So God cares so much about what you do. It's why he's given you his word to help you navigate this tricky life, this life that's full of lies and deception And he's given you his word because he cares about you. He loves you. He wants you to use everything he's given you well. 
So it matters what you do with the body he's given you. It matters what you do and what you say with the tongue he's given you. It matters what you do with the gifts and talents that he's given you. Because he cares, because he loves, he's a good father. So that's one of the biggest lies. God doesn't care. And I see it played out in so many ways. One of them being that he doesn't care how you live. He does care. Another set of lies that I hear over and over again are these lies about what we need. And these lies are particularly exaggerated by advertisers. Now, we've got some people that work for ad agencies in here, so I'm not coming after you. But the whole idea of advertisers is to get you to want something that you do not need. And they're going to get fired if they don't get more people who don't need it to want it. Because they're competing against other advertisers trying to get you. You see, this is how advertising works. And so the lies stack up over the lies, and you don't need it. I mean, how many of you have bought a pillow off of a Facebook ad? I have. Raise your hand. Be honest. Thank you very much, Demi. (laughs) Truth tellers. I bought the pillow cube because they told me my body is shaped like a cube, not like a regular pillow. And it sounded really honest. I was like, you're right. My shoulder is at a 90. No, it's not. My shoulder is not a 90 degree. Whose shoulder is 90 degrees? They got me with the pillow cube. And that pillow sits in a closet somewhere in my house, and I'm 60 bucks poorer. Okay, you have a pillow cue? Okay, Demi, sorry, she has a 90 degree. Great posture. Maybe my posture has been so corrupted by the fall that I no longer have a pillow cue. So there, man, heaven's coming. I'm excited about that. Pillow cube life. Oh, man. Okay, so advertisers. We are constantly being told we need something when it's actually just a nice thing to have or a good thing, but we say you need it if you don't. And we're, so we're constantly being lied, at, lied to. A third category is lies about what we are. What we are. My new favorite thing to say, I don't actually say it out loud. I don't have the guts to do it. But in my head, I say out loud when people ask me, just a random person at a coffee shop, well, what do you do for work? In my head, I say I'm an activist. Because as soon as I say pastor, they say, I'll have a great day. So I say, well, what do, you, what do you activate? What are you trying to do? It's like, I am protesting constantly that people are worth way more than the world is telling them they're worth. The world, and, and particularly a world of science that we live in, in the Western world, is telling you that you are a biological accident of time and chance. That's what that worldview teaches. The worldview that most schools are built on, most institutions of higher education are built on. That is what you are at the end of the day. Now, they will tell you you have great value, but it doesn't actually lead from their worldview. They're snagging that from somewhere else because they know deep down that you're worth more. But that's what the logical conclusion is. So in some sense, you don't matter. There's a philosopher named Peter Singer who believes there is no God and holds to this view, and he actually lives it out quite 
consistently, and I actually appreciate them, that he will say that we are no different than animals. And so if we were to get rid of disabled animals when they're born because they're too much, he'd say we should do the same with disabled children. It's it's a stark, terror-inflicting kind of worldview, but at least he's honest. And so I'm on a mission. Part of my mission is to tell people that they are worth far more than they think they are worth. That is a lie that is either spoken to you um, undercover or out loud by Peter Singer, but usually undercover, that you're nothing more than just a part of the natural world. God says something very different. He says you are created in the image of God. In the image of God you're created, in the likeness of God. Male and female, he made them. And, And so valuable are you that rather than just get rid of you and start over, he sent his son to die for you. I'm an activist to tell you you're worth way more than you think you're worth. C.S. Lewis famously said, there are no such thing as mortal creatures when you're talking about human beings. He says, culture, art, civilization, they're all like a gnat in the timeline of history. But every person that you talk to at a coffee shop, that you sit next to at church, that you work in the cubicle next to, these are immortal creatures created in the image of God. And if you live your life that way, you'll live very differently. I'm an activist. Don't believe the lie that you're a biological accident of time and chance. You're created purposely by the creator. And you're loved by him. So lies are all around us. We also have the lie of determinism. Some people believe that, well, you are, based on sort of the same worldview, you're just sort of a combination of time and chance and the family you're born into and the place you're born and the skills you have, we can almost just kind of predict what your earning potential will be and your life will be what it is. It's almost fatalistic, determined for you. That's a lie. That's not how God works. On the flip side of that, people will tell you the lie that you're in total control. It's the lie of freedom, that you're totally free to do whatever you want. That's a lie. You are not totally free. You live in God's world. You are saved by your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You are bought at a price. You are not free to do whatever you want. But you are free from sin when you give your life to Christ, when he took upon himself sin and death. If you're not yet surrendered to Christ, you are still, as we said last week, drinking the cup of your own wrath of these things stored up to you by your bondage to sin. You're not totally free. You're not totally in control. So that's a lie. So we don't see sometimes all the lies that are surrounding us. And when we become awake to it, the thing that we should do is groan like the psalmist does and said, these deceitful tongues, these lying lips, they're all around me spewing lies, distracting me and confusing me from what God has actually told me is true and right and good and beautiful in the world. God, save me from this. Give me reprieve. Let me start my pilgrimage to the festival. That's what's going on here. If you don't hear the lies, if you don't see all the ways you're being lied to, you'll just go along with whatever the lie or the newest lie is. But if you stay rooted in God's voice, his truth, an amazing thing happens. You treat your coworker as if they are an immortal creature created in the image of God who you are called to love and lay your life down for and to care about as much as you care about yourself. Imagine a world like that. That would feel a lot like the kingdom of God.
God is not silent. He's speaking. Are we listening? The second thing that the psalmist is, is, is just so distraught by, is so turned over by, is so ready to get to the festival just to get a reprieve from it, is he's surrounded by war. He's like, well, no, no, well, we're, we don't struggle with war. This is one thing we've gotten right. We've figured this out. We now live in a time of peace. Heard that lie? You think you live in a time of peace? Do you? I, I don't know if I just went to a, a fundraiser for International Justice Mission. There are more people living in slavery today than at any time in human history. Let me just, just read you some quotes or some stats. Okay. So, in the Middle Ages, war ravaged Europe, culminating in the horrors of the Thirty-Year War, which ended in 1648, sort of the beginning of the Enlightenment, when we started to figure out if we all just work together, life will be better. A time of peace, right? No. There have been 278 wars, and I think this was written before even the war in Ukraine and the other wars that raged in the last 10 years. 278 wars in the centuries between 1480 and the end of World War II, and then you add on how many since then. He says here that there's been at least 12 limited wars in the world, 38 political assassinations, 48 personal revolts, 74 rebellions of independence, 1,162 social revolutions, either political, economic, racial, or religious, since 1967. In World War I, 30 million people perished. Okay, well, we got war out of our system, right? No. Pretty much on the same amphitheater with the same nations, we went back to war just a few years later, and 60 million lives were the cost of that second world war. This is all within the last hundred years, guys. Human beings are beings of war without God. God is a God of peace and shalom. So literal war is all around you. So you don't have to live in Meshech or Kedar to experience war all around you. War is a part of our world still, even though we like to distance ourselves from it. People are constantly battling to take stuff from other people. This is, the, this is just the state of the human heart without God. It's the state of my heart even with God. I am not fully free of my war mentality. I am a work in process. So are you. But war is all around us. We can't trick ourselves. Now, not just physical war, but also think about the political scene. I don't think we've ever been more at war in the politics of this country than we are right now. Maybe the Civil War era. But the way politics are done, I mean, just think, the way Fox News battles with MSNBC. I mean, people are picking sides and they're warring against each other. I heard a stat like 87% of the people that watch Fox News religiously vote Republican and 95% of the people that watch MSNBC vote Democrat. You think you're not picking sides even by what you ingest through the news? Because we are people of war. And now we watch our political pundits battle it out for us, the gladiators on the stage. We are warmongers. What about the battle of the sexes that rages around us? 
pitting men versus women, fighting for the same positions, fighting for the same jobs. This is not God's world. This is not God's kingdom where men and work, women work in unity towards God's perfect ends. Just this morning, Martin told me, a great, I don't know if it's true, but Martin knows a lot of history, that, that Abraham Lincoln, he, he, would, he would have said he was a man of God, but it wasn't until he visited the battlefields of Gettysburg that history tells us that he cried out and he said, I need to see a pastor because he saw the results of war, the bitterness of man's heart, what war does to it, how it tears us apart. And this story is constant, isn't it? When you see the effect of war, you can't help but cry out to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lincoln had a reawakening or a conversion moment. or We don't know exactly, but he was not the same man after seeing the effects of the war that he courageously led our country into. War changes us. We just have to acknowledge that it's everywhere around us. It's pressing in on us. And like the psalmist, we cry, God, get me out of here. Help me, God. Give me relief. Give me reprieve. Give me something because it's all around me. The lies and the war. I just want shalom and peace and truth. Where can I get it? If you're not crying that cry to the Lord, you're not awake to the world you live in. You're living in a fairy tale of your own design. We will not find heaven on our own. We can't conjure it up. Technology will not get us there. Go watch the movie Oppenheimer. It's not the Savior. Christ is the Savior. It's the only way. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. We have to wake up. And we have to cry out to God for home to come. Come now, Lord Jesus. So a couple applications. Number one, number one, I pray that when you come to church on Sundays, this place can be a place of peace, shalom, truth, a reprieve from the lies that you hear around you 24-7 when you come into this place. Sub-application number one. You can't just say we are a place of truth. That's each and every one of our jobs. We have to be a community of truth. We have to be a place that fights against slander and gossip and half-truths and be a place where when you come here, you know these people are people of truth. That the honesty that we have towards one another and towards ourselves brings freedom from the tyranny of lies, the shadow of lies that's all around us. I don't know if we're there yet. I don't know. I hope you're experiencing some of that in your cadres, where you get together and you feel like finally we're being honest. Finally, this is a place where we can't, we don't pretend that we have it all together. Where we don't pretend that we're perfect little Jesus followers who always do the right thing. We're not. We all still have that warring, deceitful self in us. 
Even though God has born a new self that is growing into glory each and every day, we still have the old self that wars against truth. And so sometimes we have to just admit, and that's where the honesty starts, that we confess, we admit, hey guys, I've been lying to you. I haven't been telling you the full truth. Maybe I kind of made that thing up about that other person. Maybe I've been sowing seeds of disunity. Maybe I've been putting little nuggets of distruth out into the world. I, I, I am sorry, God. I'm, guys, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to fight against the old self and live into the new self to be like Christ that never spoke a false word. So when I mess up again, I confess it and I say, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't totally honest there. For some reason, reason the old self kind of took over and I kind of did the thing that I always do which is I kind of uh, I just twist the truth a little so it starts with each and every one of us if this is going to be a safe place that people want to pilgrim to I hope you feel a little bit of it that this place seems safer or truer with less lying less deception than other places honestly churches can be the opposite of that where you have to put on a mask to come in and you have to pretend. May it never be true of Sedaris Church. You have to fight against that. Religious communities have to fight against this putting on of a mask of perfection and self-righteousness because we're imperfect. We're all fallen. We're all sinful. We all mess up. But hopefully at least it can be a place of truth. So the second thing, because I want this place, this community, to be like going to the, the festivals in Jerusalem. That each that during the week as you're being lied to at work and lied to by advertisers and people are warring against you and you're hearing the, battle, the, uh, the battles that rage, that you cry out, I can't wait till Sunday where there's no war. Where not, everyone's not vying for power and trying to knock off everyone else and trying to be the most powerful person in the room. And there's not a battle of the sexes, that there's men and women working together for the glory of God. And we're not out here trying to carve out our own little spaces, but we're all working in unity and harmony. That you feel that when you're a part of Sedera, so that you look forward to it during the week. You're like, at least I'll have a couple hours on Sunday. Or at least when I go to my cadre, no one's trying to one-up me. And say how great they are. And take up all the airspace. Are we there? I hope we're closer here than the rest of the world. But we've got a lot of work to do. And again, it's up to each and every one of us to love unity as God loves unity. To put our little side battles to rest. This is not a perfect church. But it's a church that strives after the things God loves, like unity and harmony and togetherness and oneness, because we have one spirit. We have one gospel. We have one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have one resurrection. We have one hope. So I hope this becomes that place for you. If you've, never, if you've always struggled to know why people get so excited about going to church, maybe you don't see how bad it is in the world. Maybe you are living with blinders, or maybe you're not truly plugged into the community and feeling the freedom that comes with honesty and peace. I hope you feel it right now. We'll try never to lie to you about who God is, though we may speak imperfectly at times. We'll try to never do anything that puts you at odds with someone else in this community. Because we are just crying out for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven.
Now, believe it or not, that was the first application. The second application goes like this. But we always, we always, in this church, will end up short. We are not yet heaven. Sedaris literally means heavenly body. We try to be the heavenly body of Christ, the heavenly community here on earth. You might get a taste, a glimpse, a momentary reprieve until heaven comes in full. But you will always remember, because God will always send you back to your world, or we will not be perfect in our uh, outworking of the gospel, but he'll definitely send you back to Kadar and Meshech, and, and you'll experience the warring and the lies. And so when we ascend, then we always return And that's part of, like I said, being Christ in the world, that God is going to give you fresh hope and desire for unity and truth and then send you back to be people of unity and truth in whatever communities, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, um, with your families. And that's part of God's plan too. So he doesn't want them to stay in Jerusalem after they come for the festivals. He's always sending them out because his glory is spreading out all over the world. And now we, as people of God, are the temples of Christ so that people can experience shalom, they can experience truth wherever God sends his people because he says, I've put my spirit in you just as it was in the temple in Jerusalem. It's a beautiful and big responsibility that when people come into your home, they might have a taste of the festival. They might have a taste of the ascent. But again, it won't come in full, which is why, even if we're coming to church and we're doing community together and we're experiencing these little temporary tastes, we will always be left yearning and longing for more, that we would sing of this homesick often, this homesickness often. God wants us to keep singing of this homesickness. The homesickness will not be taken away. So we embrace uh, what C.S. Lewis calls this nostalgia for our future home where we will never actually see it in full now, but we can taste it in part through these things he's given to us. C.S. Lewis calls it sensucht, with this German word for this longing that feels like joy. So I'm going to play that quote. I'm going to read that quote to close us out. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this great, he talks about it over and over again. Sensucht is the German word. And he translates it as joy or longing. So it's like a strange kind of joy and longing. It's that joy and longing I have when I was at camp, but I'm so homesick for my family because I remember how great my home is, and this isn't it. But we have it now. So C.S. Lewis writes this. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely, from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire. For glory meant good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. God is the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all of our lives will open at last. Apparently, he continues... Then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, 
to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fantasy or fancy. But the truest index of our real situation and to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all of our merits and also the healing of that old ache. That's what the psalmist is singing about. This longing, we've been knocking at this door of these things that we want, truth and peace and shalom. And so this is my thought, never forget that longing will be fulfilled. Don't give up on that longing, is what I'm trying to say. That can be your joy now. Even while you wait for these things to come, and they seem so far off, keep knocking on that door, and Jesus Christ is faithful to open it. We don't know when and how but we know he will. And I pray that you can have little tastes of that every time you come into this community. Let's pray.